Good morning. Uh, as we were singing those songs, I, uh, I thought uh, just in this last week, there's been some tragic things that have happened if you've been watching the news, and, and certainly it goes way beyond this last week, you know, that we could go the last year or more. And I just thought of what a strange tension, the songs that we were singing, such hope-filled songs, right? Thinking of a future that is so encouraging, so comforting, so inspiring, and we sing that at the very same time of all of the pain and difficulty and tragedy that's going on all around us, all around the world. And I've also been thinking lately a lot about how um, I guess in some ways, for better or worse, in the United States, we're able to uh, have a buffer around us. Like we have some margin that so many people in the world will never have. And so we miss out sometimes on the significance of what we were singing because we just sort of think, well, it just always ought to be like this. It just ought to be comfortable, convenient, enjoyable. And uh, there's people that they don't ever get away from the pain. And those songs, and more importantly, the truth of what we were singing about, that's all they've got. They're not looking for that now. They're looking for that in a day that is somewhere down the road. And that's exactly what we're going to uh, be looking at this morning as we get back into 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, a couple of things as we uh, get into this passage. What do you say to someone who is walking through the valley? Who's in just a real place of pain or suffering or trial. And for whatever reason, whether they're a friend or honestly your paths just cross. And you're brought into the presence of that great suffering. What do you say to them? Some will say, don't say anything. Just sit there and be present, and I get that. I'm not sure that's the only answer, though. Now let's flip it. Let's think about you're in that place. What do you want someone to say to you? Now, again, you may say nothing. I don't want to hear anything. But, but really? Is there nothing at all that you could hear that wouldn't change your whole frame of mind about what you're living in in that moment? Consolation in the valley is a very difficult thing. It's hard to give and it's hard to receive. I mean, we can say things that are trite or insensitive. Uh, we, sometimes we can say more than we should. Sometimes we don't say enough. So I've been in that. I've, I've tried hard because I want to say the right thing. So giving consolation is a real challenge, but also receiving it. You know, we can be in such a dark place. We can be so down that we actually reject something that would transform our perspective. So we push truth away because we are so immersed in our grief. A friend of mine uh, came up with, uh, he coined a little, it's a phrase, I guess, it's an acrostic uh, back in 2008. His name's Lloyd Shadrach. He actually pastors 
Fellowship Bible Church over in Brentwood. He and a buddy came up with this thing. I'm going to teach it to you this morning. I hope you'll remember it forever. It's Igbok. How many of you have heard of Igbok? How about, let me hear you say that. Igbok, there you go. So if things are just absolutely blowing to pieces and falling apart, Igbok, it's going to be okay. Now when I say that, that may sound really shallow. That may sound really trite. Just to say, oh yeah, it's going to be okay. But I believe, and, and Lloyd would say this, that the truth of that phrase may be one of the most important truths we will ever embrace in our lives, living in a broken, sin-wrecked world. Now, if someone said Igbok to me, I might have a couple of questions. I might say, well, what do you mean it's going to be okay? Like, what's going to be okay? And how do you know it's going to be okay? How can you tell me that? And how is everything that is most definitely not okay right now, how is that ever going to become okay? Paul answers every single one of those questions in this passage. And he helps us hear that phrase in a way that fills us with hope. Something we desperately, desperately need. If you're having some of those questions, you're in good company with this young church in Thessalonica. There was a whole lot going on there, and um, they were troubled, no doubt about it. And um, Paul is going to try and address some of their questions and concerns. Now, you'll remember that uh, Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica because he couldn't go and be with them. Uh, he'd been kicked out of town, and Timothy spent some time with them. We don't know all that they did. We don't know all that they talked about. We just know that Timothy spent some time with them, and then he returned to Corinth and gave Paul a report of what he saw and heard in that city as it relates to the church. So apparently, and we've seen in the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of great news. I mean, these folks were killing it, doing really, really well, some, in some ways, very, in very surprising ways. Their influence, their joy, all of that. But there was some heartbrokenness over the death of friends and family within their new church that seemed to be overwhelming. It seemed to be grief that was slipping into despair. They weren't just sad. It was beyond sad. There's a lot of speculation if you read commentators about what was going on, like why did these people die? Was it nat natural causes? Was, was there an outbreak of persecution and uh, people were uh, taking lives of their friends and family? So we don't know, and I'm actually not even sure it's that important. I, I think here you have these new believers. They have trusted in Christ, and they've heard about a hope that relates to a future. And they're trying to reconcile the death that they're seeing around them and this hope that they're supposed to have that they've never had before. And... Reconciling those things can be challenging, and I think sometimes 
we do this weird thing. We see death all the time, like in movies and all that kind of, like people are literally dying all the time, and we're just like, it's entertaining. And then we go to a funeral, and we're actually confronted with death, the end of life. And it just pulls us to pieces. Like, how, why is that? Why do we do that? I think Paul would want them and us to to face death very honestly, very authentically, very humbly, and full of hope. I think that's what he would want us to do. I think that's what he wanted them to do. Again, they, they wholeheartedly believed the gospel And Paul applauded the influence that they were having, that the gospel was spreading all around Macedonia. He was setting them up as a model church for other churches to follow in terms of their generosity and their influence. But their struggle to uh, reconcile Christ's return with the death of their fellow believers, that, for whatever reason, that was really getting them stuck. So Paul writes some instructions to them to help them. And I want to actually jump to the end of our passage so that we understand how we're supposed to apply this teaching. He says in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now remember my question at the beginning. What do you say to somebody who's walking through the valley. What would you like to hear if you're the one walking through the valley? Well, there are some things here that I think these are the words that we're supposed to speak and hear in that place of difficulty and pain and suffering and trial. Paul uh, said back in verse 10 that he wished to come to them and supply what is lacking. Do you guys remember that? What was lacking in their faith? And so what we can assume here is that one of the things, at least one of the things that was lacking in their faith was hope. So that's another thing that we're going to think about this morning is what's the relationship between faith and hope? And how could we have faith that lacks hope? And what would it look like to regain that so that our faith does everything that it intended to do? Um, Paul begins, going back up into verse 13, he wants to guide them toward gospel-grounded grief. Gospel-grounded grief. And I'll tell you guys, um, one of the most painful events of my entire lifetime was my parents' divorce at age 8. And I remember in a moment, like, I'm telling you guys, it was just in the blink of an eye when I heard that my dad was never coming back. It washed over me like a tsunami. Anger, fear, sadness. It was just overwhelming. I was enraged in a moment. And something happened to me at eight years old, and I certainly didn't know it at the time. This was just my way of dealing with that. But something inside of me, I basically just said, that will never happen again. No surprises. I'm not giving anybody that kind of control over my life. 
So that was what I did. Now, you may have done something completely different. That's part of the beauty of this is Paul is writing to a church, and they're all dealing with the heartache of death in a variety of ways. And the key ingredient they all need, the key ingredient I needed as an eight-year-old boy was hope. And he's going to give it to them, and he's going to give it to us so that we can live differently than the world who doesn't have it. Look at verse 13. He helps them see what gospel-grounded grief doesn't look like. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So these believers, that's that's what he's meaning when he says brothers and again sisters. So these are people in the church. They're grieving the death of their friends and loved ones. That's the reference to them falling asleep. That's what that means. It's, it's just a way of talking about death. But their response resembled the grief of the world. And the way Paul characterizes the grief of the world is that it's sadness, but it's sadness without hope. That was the feature that stood out to Paul, that stood out to Timothy. That's what was going on there. There was an absence of hope. And it's no surprise in first century Greco-Roman culture, they believed in a shadowy afterlife in the underworld. You've probably heard different explanations of this in Greek mythology, but... You've got an underworld governed by mythical gods, Hades being the primary ruler. The worst of humanity, they were thought to suffer punishment in Tartarus. That was some region in Hades. And then the best of their culture were expected to enjoy Elysium. Um, Think of the gladiator. Remember the guy walking through the wheat fields and glorious music playing in the background? So that's Elysium. So, and then everybody else gets ferried across the river Styx by the god Charon, and they're ushered into a meaningless existence among the souls of the dead. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Everyone's looking forward to that. Two ancient uh, poets described their cultural view of death. One said, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. Another said, the sun can set and rise again, but our brief, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. That's the grief of the world, absent of hope. And this young church, when they were confronted with the death of their friends and family, they were slipping into that. They were reverting to what they knew, what they had experienced and heard of all of their life. And they're struggling through it. It made me wonder, how do people cope without hope today? I shared a little bit of what I did as a young boy, but I can tell you, um, I've really had to grow 
throughout the course of my life, especially you know, when I got married and started having kids, I had this stoic thing going on where I, I just didn't allow sadness to be something that I could express. I didn't express that very well. Most of the time, if I expressed anything, it would have been anger, not sadness. So I actually had to learn to differentiate between the two just to kind of know, am I sad right now or am I mad? I didn't do that very well, but part of what I did was I just stuffed it all. That was how I coped with a sin-wrecked world. So how do people today cope without hope? See if you can identify with any of these. Some resort to spirituality. Now, I'm not talking about Christian spirituality. I'm just talking about an individualized sort of subjective mysticism or kind of transcendentalism. It's really just a spiritual escape from reality. Some people do that when they face a broken, sin-wrecked world. Others will go toward acquisition. This is a compulsive drive for material, social, or authoritarian gain. It's being kind of finding diversions in productivity or power. It's a lot of it's a drive kind of thing. Those of us who tend towards workaholism, that may actually be a way that we deal with this world that we're living in. Some resort to self-indulgence. The phrase eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's self-indulgence. That's basically affording yourselves every pleasure you can imagine as a way, again, of escaping the pain and difficulty of a broken, sin-wrecked world. Last week, uh, Benji talked about sexual immorality, and it, it makes all the sense in the world if you think about all the pain and difficulty of life, and then you think about the allure of this precious gift that God has given us in sexuality, and then it gets perverted. And it's used as a tool to make us feel better rather than as a way of expressing love in a covenant relationship in such a way that honors God. So some of us will give ourselves to that to mask the unresolved pain and sadness. Another way we mask the difficulty of life is living in an altered state of mind. So this is just simply taking things into our body that are mood-altering substances, so alcohol, drugs, whatever, all of that just to physically feel better or at least different than we wouldn't feel without it. That's one other method. Then lastly, I, I want to talk about depression, not at length, but just mention it, that um, some might say that depression means you've sort of lost an ability to cope. Actually, physiological stuff starts to take over, and you find yourself in a very dark, dark place, unable to get out. It's a life of futility, and the end of that road not for everyone, but honestly, is often suicide. And I was, I was shocked. I, I didn't know these statistics, but in 2019, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death for everything. It was the second 
leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 10 and 34. It was the fourth leading cause of death among those between the ages of 35 and 44. It was two and a half times the number suicides were than those of homicides in 2019. There's a lot of people living without hope and got to such a place where ending their life seemed like a better solution than hanging in there with life without hope. We need hope like we need air to breathe. It is essential for all of us. So Paul gives these Thessalonians hope-infused information to help them get to a place where they can grieve full of hope, differently than the world would, differently than they would otherwise. Now, grief that is grounded in the gospel isn't driven to despair because the gospel points us to a desirable future. I want to mention a couple of uh, references here. Luke 23, 43, imagine the scene. Jesus is on the cross. Is there a darker place? Is there a place more painful, more horrific, more humiliating than that? He's next to a thief who deserves to be there. And if anybody would be lacking hope in that moment, he's the guy, right? What does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Simply because he asked Jesus to remember him. How about that? Do you think that guy got a little hope right then in that moment? 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And that was a hard place to be. But then the inverse is true. To be away from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And that was a wonderful thought for Paul. He actually says in Philippians 1, 23, My desire is to depart this life. I mean, if I just could. I'd check out and and I'd go to be with him. For that is far better, Paul says. He didn't. He never checked out. But, But he certainly acknowledged the reality that there is going to be something far better than this life. And the hope in that helped him to live differently in that life than he would have otherwise. So there is this forward-looking hope. Now, I want to take a side note here, and I do not in any way want to be unkind, but I want to talk about an, an idea that is certainly prevalent in our world, but I think it conflicts with all of the hope that Paul is trying to give these people, and that is the Catholic concept of purgatory. Now, there are some who would suggest, and this is not an old kind of ancient idea. This is like today. This is on Catholic websites. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, it defines purgatory as purification so as to, listen to these words carefully, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. 
it assumes that there is some form of waiting or suffering that must be undertaken after you die in order to actually make your way into heaven. So that therefore must mean that what Christ did on the cross was insufficient. It also must mean that somehow our waiting and or suffering must play an essential role in our being made acceptable to God. Now, where do we ever find that in our New Testament? Nowhere. We are saved by grace, through faith, as a gift of God, not as a result of achieving anything. Jesus said his last words on earth as a man, it is finished. That means that no one can add anything to what he has done to make a sinful human being righteous in the sight of God. Nothing. In this life or in the next. So again, I'm, I'm not attempting to be unkind, but I am saying that there are many who truly believe that they're not done when they die. There's more to be done. There's more work to be done. And uh, the problem is nobody can define how much is enough. And isn't that the truth for all of us? If it's up to you and me, it's never enough. We desperately need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the gospel. And it's full of hope. Because we can trust in him. Paul goes on to uh, encourage them in verse 14. And his idea there is that we are buoyed by our beliefs. So when life is coming at us and we feel discouraged or downhearted, it is our beliefs in something that is objectively true. That is what raises us back up to a place of hope where we can move forward. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul states definitively, there is a a content of belief that they have embraced. It's very concise but very clear. To believe is to have faith. It is to trust. That's a thing. It's not just like mental assent. This is like I am entrusting myself to another. We believe. What do we believe? That Jesus died, biblically speaking, by Roman crucifixion. His life, physical life, ended And then he rose again on the third day. He says this also in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. And listen to how he presents this to the Corinthian church. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance. Like, this is it, guys. You got to get this. 
I gave to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. That is the truth, the objective truth. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about it. It happened. And it either changes everything for us spiritually or it doesn't. That is our doctrinal foundation, the linchpin of our faith. Jesus died and rose again. That is the creed of Christianity. So he starts there. But but the idea is that that belief means something for us in our future. Now, I'm going to get to that in just a second, but I want to talk about he's He's putting together, remember I said a moment ago, there's a relationship between faith and hope. So let's think about how these two things relate to each other. Faith is oriented to an object or a person, God. So faith is oriented to an object while hope is oriented to an outcome, a future. Now, I'm not trying to be rigid or dogmatic about this. It's just helping me clarify what's the difference between faith and hope. They can't be the same thing. Otherwise, we would just use one word. But we use both. I mean, even think about Paul saying faith, hope, and love. He distinguishes between those. So we can think about faith as oriented to an object, hope oriented to an outcome, which means we have faith in God and hope for a desirable future. Now lose one of those ingredients, and what do you have? Despair. Faith is genuine. We know that it's genuine as it works itself out. Um, James talks about in um, James 2 talks about um, faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean you have to do works in order to get acceptance by God. It just means that faith that is genuine, it can't help but just work itself out in everyday life. Hope fuels that activity. If you have hope in a future, then you continue to live by faith in the moment regardless of opposition or difficulty, because you're not living for everything to be okay right then. You're living for everything to be okay one day in the future, according to God's promise. So hope enables us to persevere in our faith. If you don't have hope, then your faith begins to erode. And you certainly won't live by it in everyday life. So God raised Jesus from the dead. And he will bring with Jesus those who have trusted in him for salvation. And to bring with him is the idea that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father. Then they will be raised from the dead in the same way. Uh, Christ is called the first fruits of the resurrection. So there's a lot of confidence there. Um, You might say, it's going to be okay. Because we've trusted in God. 
And just he, he, like he, he showed us what he's going to do with all of us by what he did with Jesus. So we can rest in that. We have hope in that. Now he goes on to tell us how the Lord will do what he's promised in verse 16 and 17. And this you could put under the banner of our blessed hope. This is what we're looking forward to. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. You and I might have a really, really, really bad day. But this I know is certain. And we will experience what we're about to look at, dead or alive. This is, this is how all things are going to come to an end. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's encouraging. Now I want to say that Paul's intention here isn't to teach the intricacies of eschatology. That's the study of end times. Okay? And there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of debates had around all the details of how all of this is going to come to an end. And I just got to encourage you, the purpose of this passage is not to give us all of the details. And there's great debate over the details, which must mean for us that People understand all of the passages that speak about the end times. They interpret those a little differently. But those things are not essentials. Here's what matters. And I'm going to let you answer this question. Is Jesus coming back? You have a perfect eschatology. (laughs) How about that? You guys are theologians. Like that's what matters. Pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial, what I mean, like, those are interesting things to think about and even talk about. And, and the Bible does seem to speak to some of that. But that is not the point. That is not what is going to give you and I hope in the valley of the shadow of death. All we need to know is that Jesus is coming back. And he is going to take us home. Our hope does not lie in the details of how it goes down. Our hope is in the fact that it will go down. And here's what Paul says. The Lord's going to appear in the clouds in a very spectacular way. I mean, we got a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. That's pretty big. The souls of those believers who died before Christ returns will be reunited with a resurrected body. I don't know how that's going to happen. I know all of you are starting to ask about all kinds of things, about how people die and all that. Like Somehow, you know, think about it this way. If the Lord can create everything with a word from nothing, I think he can figure out the whole resurrection deal. I'm confident of that. 
So the dead in Christ are going to be reunited with a resurrected body, and that's going to happen prior to the rapture of those who are alive. That's the other group here. Believers who are alive at this time will be caught up. That's where we get the concept of rapture. That literally means to be snatched up or swept away. It's a very forceful word. Believers will be caught up and transformed into their glorified bodies. So basically, you now have a community in the air with Jesus, and everybody is clothed physically with their resurrected body, whatever that is. And then we're told we will always be with the Lord. Together. Together. In God's presence, all things made new. All things. Whatever it is that isn't okay today, it's going to be okay then. I don't know how, but I know that it must be. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Remind one another that we're not living for this moment. We're living for another. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. He says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's a truth. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Amen. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Listen, hope produces holiness. Faith without it erodes. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. He also says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Take heart. Igbach going to be okay. I want to ask you to think for a moment about what difference any of this makes in your life today. So let's just say that we leave today full of fresh hope. How is that going to change the way you live your life for the rest of today? Like what kind of priorities might change What might occupy your mind as you're making your way? How would your relationships be affected by this kind of hope? I want you to think very practically. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom and insight, discernment about how to apply it. But I have to believe that every one of us can make some adjustments that would reflect a life full of hope. In light of what 
Jesus has promised. So take just a moment and uh, prayerfully ask him to show you how to apply this passage to your life. Pray with me. Let's thank the Lord for this encouraging word. Father in heaven, we confess to you that uh, we are a needy people. Uh, We do feel afraid, sad, angry. We feel threatened by life in this broken world. We grieve uh, all kinds of loss. But Lord, uh, we want to grieve as those who are full of hope. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your word that uh, doesn't leave us uninformed. But we're told how things will end. And that is so encouraging. Lord, would you bring that to mind often? Would you help us to fix our gaze on our future with Christ? And then, Lord, would you use us to share that hope with the people around us, starting in our homes and across the street with our neighbors, maybe in the workplace with our colleagues. Lord, wherever we go, Lord, would we be able to share this beautiful message of hope with others who may not have it. Thank you, Father. We love you and we thank you for loving us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.